0: G'day, Osha here. Do you remember being more focused? Do you remember a time when you could do just one thing at once and enjoy it? How about this? Can you remember a time when you were alone with your thoughts? Can you remember a time when you were bored? Can you remember the last time that someone left the room and you didn't pick up your phone, unlock it, and start engaging with an app? Almost straight away. If you answered no to a lot of those questions, three things. One, you're not alone. Two, those things are abnormal to the human condition and interrupt what makes us enjoy our life, each other, and what fundamentally makes us human. And three, most importantly of all, it's not your fault. This week, my podcast guest is the incomparable Johan Hari, a brilliant investigative journalist whose new book, Stolen Focus, digs into the deep and profound reasons how second by second, moment by moment, your attention, my attention, and I would argue our very humanity is being drained from us for profit that we don't participate in by forces bigger than us and how we can fight to get it back. Before we get to the show, there might be some ads here. If there are, thank you. You're helping us pay the bills. If not, we'll get to Johan Hari. Hold
1: up. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with
2: Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The joy of attention to things that matter to us is such a profound joy that's being stolen from us. And I think to get it back, we've got to have a shift in consciousness. We need to stop blaming ourselves and feeling bad about ourselves. This is being done to us by these big forces and I think we've got to have two real resolute determinations one is we've got to determine to protect ourselves at the level of the individual and there's all sorts of things we can do about that but also we've got to have like we say this bigger demand which is we've got to stop thinking of ourselves we're not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention we are the free citizens of democracies we own our own minds And we can reclaim our minds from these fuckers who've stolen them from us if we are determined to and if we fight together.
0: That was journalist and author Johan Hari. And this is Better Than Yesterday. G'day. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. I'm Washer Ginsberg. This is a tri-weekly podcast that does what it says on the box. It's here to help m- make your day better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show will make your day better than yesterday. We've been here since 2013. There are hundreds of episodes to choose from. I'm here three times a week. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And Thank you for being along on the ride. You can find me if you ever want to get in touch with me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. I'm also uh, on Instagram and Twitter, wherever you choose to engage with those places. If you've never listened to the show before, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm recovering from a total hip replacement. Um, What else am I doing? I have a terrible mullet at the moment, but it matches my uh, toddler, so it's excused um what else do i do oh i recently bought a a new barbell for the uh for the backyard workout scenario so i'm pretty happy about that and um yeah i've been thrilled to say that i've been making this show for this is the ninth year of making this show and i couldn't be happier to be here with you And, and thank you for being along for it if you've never listened enjoy the previous episodes And enjoy this one today, because it's a really good one. Quickly, before we get to the conversation with Johan Hari, live shows are coming. The plans solidify. We will probably, hopefully, have some dates for you within the week. But it's looking Brisbane and Melbourne. It's looking April. Maybe Sydney, but definitely April. So keep your Saturday nights in April free. (laughs) I'll tell you when. And I can't wait, because it's going to be great. Let me tell you about my guest today. Johan Hari is a writer and a journalist from London. He's been on the show before, and I couldn't be more happy to welcome him back. He's written for the New York Times, Le Monde, Sydney Morning Herald, many of the other most reputable mastheads on the planet. His books are remarkable. His 2015 book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, is a profound look at addiction, and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. Lost Connections, Uh, which is a book that was an eye-opening unpacking, really, into the societal reasons around depression and anxiety and how we might combat them. That was really interesting for me, and it changed the way I do a lot of things in my day and changed how I prioritize how I spend my time in many ways after I read that book. And his new book is called Stolen Focus. It's a harrowing look at how our attention, the very things that we focus on, is being manipulated and yes, stolen from us. The idea that as free humans, we choose what we can focus on, who we focus on and how we focus on those things is being taken away from us. That idea is nothing new. But in his book, Johan unpacks the research behind the 12 main reasons as to why this is happening more than ever before in human history, how this is happening and what we can do to get our attention back to own once again what we are choosing to do with our day and how we are choosing to do it. It's extraordinary that we're having this conversation, but I'm glad that we are because this is where we are. You can find Johan's book wherever you get your books. All his work is at johanhari.com, J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I.com. A quick word here, this conversation does briefly and in context mention violence, sexual abuse, sexual violence and suicide, not all at once, but we do cover those topics in context in the exposition of a point that either of us are making. Just a heads up, enjoy this conversation with the magnificent Johan Hari. How you doing, Johan?
2: You okay? I'm all right. You're very blurry to me, Osha. Can you see me all oh, right? I can I see
0: know, you. F- no, it's totally fine. Where in Australia are you at the moment, Osha? We're in Sydney, mate. We're in the eastern part of Sydney. We're in the very, very, probably the luckiest part of the world to exist in, in the world, and then the luckiest part of that part. We are insanely fortunate to be where we are.
2: I would fucking kill to be that. I've been in Las Vegas for most of the play. Christ. And uh, what a fucking
0: horrible place to be stuck.
2: Well, not least because you're surrounded by people whose response to a global pandemic is to say, well, this is the perfect time to go to Vegas. So you're literally just surrounded by people who could not be more deranged, right? It's just uh, horrifying, but never mind. That's the
0: well, I think we'll get to that because, yeah, I'm fascinated by your work. You know that oh. as someone who's nearly twelve years sober, I was, you know, very, very interested in your work on sobriety. As someone who's on SSRIs, I was really interested in Lost Connections.
2: <laughs> You're my target audience.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm your guy. Like I'm in the demo, You're dude. Designed
2: in a lab. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm. I'm your demo, and so to be able to speak to you again about your new book around our attention and. The idea that, no, you're not imagining it. Your actual attention is actually not what it used to be. And your ability to focus on things is not what it was when you were younger. And it is happening across the society. And it is a big fucking problem because it stops us as a society from dealing with things that we need to in a focused way. So when I, once I, I got that log line, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in. And <laughs> every occasion I'll be reading it and I turn to Audrey and I'm like, this is fucking devastating. <laughs> I just look at her with this gravel in my voice because it's Im- incredibly important work. When did you start to go? Was It was clearly your own experience that you were like, there's something going on here. I'm a smart person, but I can't put this fucking thing down.
2: Yeah, there was this moment for me when it all, you know, I'd had years where I was, I just could see it happening. You know, whenever I would meet... We're about the same age, aren't we? How old are you, Osher? I'll be
0: 48 in March.
2: Right, so you're slightly older than me. I'm 42. I'm nearly 43, but only slightly. So whenever people our age would meet, one of the first things that would come up would be, fuck, I can't pay attention anymore. I don't know what to do, right? But it would be a sort of... You know, it would come up in the conversation. People would seem panicked, and then people would move on to another thing because they didn't have the attention to stay with that topic for very long. And I would see you know little stray studies that would really alarm me like you know it was a small study of american college students that found that on average they focus on any one task for 65 seconds and i'd be like oh and then I saw a sort of study by professor gloria mark at the university of irvine in california showed the average office worker now focuses on any one thing for 3 minutes i'd be like oh but i kept reassuring myself i think i said to be honest i didn't want to think about it i kept reassuring myself ah, uh, every generation thinks this, right? Your brain deteriorates and you mistake, you, you know, your deterioration for the materi- deterioration of the world, right? It's a kind of natural human thing. You know, there's some instances in the past, you can find letters from monks almost a thousand years ago where they write to each other going, God, my attention ain't what it used to be. Um, you know, that's not exactly what the monks said, but that is the gist of it. And, and then there was a moment for me when I thought, you know what? I, I actually really should look into this more. It was related to my godson, Adam. When he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis. So he would run around like constantly impersonating Elvis. Uh, And what was cute about it is he didn't know this had become like a cheesy cliche. So he did it with all the kind of heart-catching sincerity of a nine-year-old who thinks he's being cool. And he kept getting me to tell him the story of Elvis again and again and again. And one night when I was tucking him in, he looked at me really intensely after I told him the story. And he said to me, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, sure. And he said, no, do you promise? And in the way that you promise anything to nine-year-olds when they're about to go to sleep because you know they won't remember. I was like, I absolutely promise I will take you to Graceland one day. And didn't think of it again for 10 years until everything had gone wrong. He was 19 by then, but when he was 15, he, he dropped out of school. And in and the four years that followed, he just spent all his time alternating between WhatsApp and Snapchat and YouTube and porn. And it was like he was just living in this kind of blur. And you know, he was very intelligent, kind, decent person, but it was like nothing could gain any traction in his mind. It was very hard to have sustained conversations. It's like his mind was whirring at the speed of Snapchat. Mm. And one day we were sitting on my sofa, just literally just behind where my laptop is, And I was looking at my own devices and thinking, oh, why am I looking at this shit? And he was sitting there looking at his, and we were trying to have a conversation, but it kept breaking because one of us would be interrupted, the other one of us would be interrupted. And suddenly I remembered this, I just thought we can't go on like this, right? And I remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what? He didn't even remember this Elvis obsession. I was like, no, no, let's go to Graceland. You know, let's break this numbing routine, let's go. And I said, I'll book the tickets now, we'll just go, right? But I said, there's one condition. You have to not be looking at your phone the whole time. You have to leave your phone off for most of the day while we're there. And he's like, fine. So literally two weeks later, we we took off from Heathrow to go to New Orleans. We went to New Orleans first. And um, when we arrive, have you been to Graceland, Osher?
0: I have not been to Graceland, but I, no. I am very close to someone who has and she's described it to me intensely.
2: <laughs> well, there's this is weird thing. I don't know if she described this bit to you, but there's this funny thing that happens. Well, when you arrive at the gates of Graceland, there isn't a physical guide anymore to show you around. The way it works is they give you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad speaks to you and it says, you know, go left, go right. It narrates the story. And every room you go into, there's a digital representation of that room on the screen in front of you. So what happens is you walk around and everyone just stares at their iPad, right? So I'm walking around with all these other people and no one's really looking around them very much. They're just sort of glued to the iPad and listening to these, these earbuds. And I sort of keep trying to make eye contact with someone to kind of laugh about it and go, isn't this funny? We're the people who travel thousands of miles and actually looked at the thing that was in front of us. And finally, a guy made eye contact with me, and I was about to say it. And then I realized he'd only taken out the earbuds so he could take out his phone and take a selfie. I felt really kind of disheartened. And we finally got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. It's like a big fake jungle. It's seen better days, to be honest, but I'm sure it was impressive once. And we're looking looking at it, and there's a Canadian couple next to me. And the guy turned to his wife, and he said, Honey, this is amazing, look. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right." And I thought he was joking, so I laughed. And then his wife sort of going, yeah, and she's swiping left and right. And I looked at him and I said, but sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because we're actually in the jungle room, right? We're actually there. You don't have to look at a digital representation of it. Look, we're right here. Yeah. And they understandably thought I was sort of deranged, so they backed out of the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it, to be like, ha isn't this hilarious? And he was just standing in a corner flicking through Snapchat, because from the minute we landed, yeah. he'd been completely unable to keep his promise. He was constantly on his phone. It was driving me completely insane, and I tried to snatch the phone off him.
0: Oh, no. And he's got a stronger grip no, than me. No. And I
2: said, you know, you're afraid of missing out, but... This is guaranteeing that you will miss out. You can't be present at your own life, right? And he sort of stomped off past Elvis's grave, which is the exit to Graceland. And I kind of wandered around on my own for a while. And I found him that night at the Heartbreak Hotel, which is where we were staying. There's a big swimming pool that's shaped like a guitar. And he was just sitting there looking at his phone. And I went up to him and he looked really sad. And he said, "Um, you know, I know something's really wrong, but I I don't know what it is. And I looked at him and I thought, in the decade in which he had become a man and this fracturing had happened to him, it felt to me like this fracturing had happened to so many people and he was at the extreme end, to be sure. But I felt like most of the people I knew felt they'd moved more in that direction, including me, and that was when I thought, I've got to properly investigate this. I've got to meet the leading experts in the world. I've got, I have got. ended up interviewing over 200 of the leading experts in the world about attention and focus, traveling all over the world to try to understand it, including to Australia, where I learned some really important things there. Yeah, that, that was the moment when I thought, you know what? You've had this sense that something's wrong for a long time. Now you need to actually look into it.
0: I look at it from my own experience, and you do mention it in the book. I literally lived, oh, it's now unfortunately less than half, but at least 23 years of my life without a phone. And I lived 20 years of my life without a mobile phone. That was just a GSM phone. And I didn't get a BlackBerry until I was 30. So yeah, I've lived only 17 years of my life have I had a smartphone from a BlackBerry and then I went to to iPhone after that. So I kind of know... In my own mind, I'm like, something started to happen. Once I started to pull down at the top of the screen and feel a little haptic buzz and see if anybody liked something on Twitter, I know when that came into my life. And yet, someone like your godson, certainly our eldest, she's nearly 18, they've never known anything different. So something very odd is, is happening. But I think the narrative that we get, and certainly wanting to snatch the phone out of the person's hands, I know, mate, I've been there never works. Um, that is the lie that we tell ourselves. Like, you are in this because you are weak. You are in this because it's your fault. And there's, it's a bigger thing at play here, isn't it, Johan?
2: As you know from my book, Stolen Focus, this is totally the conclusion that the evidence led me to. That we, I think we tell two dominant stories about our attention problems at the moment. I know I did. So one is just that it is what you say, it's a sign of personal weakness. I would say to myself when I felt my attention atrophying, you're weak, you're lazy, you're not strong enough, you need more willpower. And the second thing, which is also an overly simplistic story, although it has more truth in it, is oh, it's just the phone that did this to us, right? It's the phone that did it to us. This new invention came along, it destroyed our, te- our, our ability to focus. But actually what I learned from interviewing the leading experts all over the world, from Melbourne to Miami to Moscow, was that actually there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that are causing our attention to degrade. Um, Interestingly, tech is not the biggest, and even the aspect that is being caused by tech is more specific, and I think not as well understood as it should be. But I think you've gotten to a really important point, which is the thing I kept bumping into the more I researched this, which is there's two levels at which we've got to respond to this. One is a personal individual level. There are lots of things we can do as individuals, but we've got to be honest, that will only get you so far and it won't get you that far. You can make real improvements. I've made real improvements, but then you bump into a a raw fact, which is at the moment, it's like all day, somebody is pouring itching powder over us. And that person who's pouring itching powder over us is going, do you know what, mate? Uh, You might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And it's like, Okay, meditation's a useful tool, but uh, we have to stop the people who are pouring the itching powder on us. And then we can think about you know uh, the more personal. I mean, we can think about them both at the same time, but I think you're absolutely right. This is a systemic problem with big systemic causes in the way we're living. The, the book is called Stolen Focus because what I realized is that our attention did not collapse. Our attention has been stolen from us by very big and powerful forces. But we can take on those forces and we can beat them if we want to get our brains back.
0: I'm, I'm interested in your research and all the people you spoke with. There's, you know, we have a physical limit to how much we can eat, all right? We, some of us feel full, or if you're me, sometimes you may be a bit dissociated with those feelings of fullness and you just keep going until eventually you, you know, I, in my past, long time ago. Now, I have just kept going until I vomited. You know, There's a point where I cannot actually physically shove any more matter into my body at a meal. Is it the same with our brains? Is there only a certain amount of of input or information that we can process uh, at a time or in a day?
2: Yeah, that's a really good analogy. And uh, you can't see this, but behind my laptop, there is a McDonald's bag. And there might even be from a few days ago, a KFC bucket. So I well empathize with your previous state. But no, there was this moment... There so many different scientists explain these limitations to me in lots of different ways. It's a it's a key aspect of understanding why our, one of the key elements, why our attention is being destroyed, that we are being pushed beyond our attentional limits in all sorts of ways. But there's one guy who, the first person who helped me to understand that, I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and interviewed one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller, amazing guy. And Professor Miller explained to me, there's one fact above everything, any other that you need to understand about the human brain. And that is that you can only think about one thing consciously at a time, that's it. It's a fundamental human limit. Human brain hasn't changed significantly in 40,000 years. It ain't gonna change on any timeframe that you and me will ever live to see. This is our limitation. But the average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media simultaneously. And so Professor Miller's colleagues studied, well, what happens when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time? You think you're paying attention to many things. And what his colleagues discovered is is something very simple, which is when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time, you're in fact juggling between them. Your consciousness papers over it. You you don't realise you're doing it, but you're juggling between them. And that comes with a series of really big costs. So it doesn't seem like much, right? So somewhere behind my laptop now, next to the McDonald's bag, is my phone, right? Now, when you were speaking a minute ago, instinctively, it feels like I should have been able to take my phone and just glance, if I had any text messages, and just glance at my text messages. It feels like that would only take a second, right? I'm focused on you, I'm listening to what you're saying. I refocus on the phone. Oh, my friend Rob's texting me. Oh, that's what he's saying. Okay, and then I refocus on you. It turns out this comes with a series of really big costs. Um, it's called the switch cost effect. Um, when your brain is toggling between tasks, and there's lots of studies that have shown how big this effect is, I'll just name two very quickly. Hewlett-Packard, the company that make printers, shit printers in my experience that always jam up, but anyway, they did a study, a small study where they got a group of their workers, they got scientists to take a group of their workers and split them into two. First group was just told, do whatever your task is and we're not gonna interrupt you. The second group was told, do your task, but they were interrupted with texts and emails pretty frequently. And then they tested the IQ of all of them. The people who had not been interrupted scored, on average, 10 IQ points higher than the people who were not interrupted. To give you a sense of how big an IQ effect that is, if you and me were not going to um, because of your uh, sobriety, which you should be very proud of, but if you and me sat down now and we smoked a spliff together our IQ would go down by five points. So it's double the effect on your intelligence and attention of getting Crikey. stoned. you will be better off sitting at your desk, smoking a fat spliff and doing one thing at a time, than sitting at your desk doing lots and lots of things, being constantly interrupted and not smoking any weed. And right? just a
0: shout out to any of the addicts who've just stopped the podcast there and gone, that's all Sorry. I needed, I'm done. <laughs> 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 and Johan said it, honey. I'm like, it's, it's for my work.
2: <laughs> I mean, better to not do either in my view. No, right? I but, uh, I'm
0: but, just, know, I'm just be, thinking uh, like what addicts would hear that shit and go, oh, yep that's it there it is
2: <laughs> yeah. that's fucking amazing really-
0: 10 iq points and just by and how what were the interruptions were they ding a bell would they say excuse me what was it
2: no they just got emails and text messages that fuck off it. or look at another study so you think about how much that's happening to all of us well, there was to give you another study there's lots of research on this there was a study at carnegie mellon university they got 138 students split them into two groups both groups were given the same exam first group was told, just do the exam in normal exam conditions, they invigilated it. Second group was told, do the exam, we're going to watch you, but you can have your phone on, you can send and receive text messages if you want. Now, you would expect the second group would do better because they could have cheated, right? You can text your mates, ask them the answer. In fact, the second group, the ones who had their phones on, did on average 20% worse than the people who didn't have their phones on. Because being interrupted, fucks your focus and attention. Uh, A study by Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon found that on average, if you're interrupted, it takes 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before the interruption. But most of us never go 23 minutes in the workday without being interrupted. So the way Professor Miller at MIT put it to me is we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of interruption and distraction. And I think we can all feel the truth of that, right? You don't need to... That, this is not like explaining quantum physics to people. It rings intuitively true. But it ha- really helped me to think about, okay, what do we do about that, right? And there are... I think it helps us to see the different way in which we need to think about this. If we think about, let's say that problem, and this is true for all the problems that we're talking about in relation to attention, or the many, the 12 factors for which there's scientific evidence that they're interrupting our, and destroying our attention, is... There's two levels at which you can respond, right? Now, there's a personal level, which is to say, I'll give you an example. You can't see it from here, but in the corner of the room there, I have something called a K-safe, right? It's a very simple thing you can buy. It's a plastic safe. You take the lid off, you put your phone in, you put the lid on, you turn the dial at the top, and you push the button and it will shut- lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a week, right? Right. Every day I put that on for four hours and I write because otherwise I I would not be able to write in the way that I do, right? So there's many, many personal things we can do that mean that we can begin to improve our focus and attention. But I'm conscious that lots of people listening, when they've heard me just say, I do that for four hours a day, will experience that as if I've gone up to a homeless person in the street and I've said, mate, um, do you know what would make you feel much better? Be if you went into the Ritz over there and you had a really nice steak. Don't you think you'd feel better then? The homeless person will entirely understandably go, I can't do that, right? I I can't do that. And in the way that our society is currently structured, many people can't, we live in a gap between the things we want to do and know we should do for our focus and attention and the things we can do. So that requires a bigger level of action. And I'll give you an example of a place that did that, just very quickly, because I think it really helps us to see, it opens up the possibility of the many things we need to do collectively to restore our attention. In France, in 2018, they had a huge crisis of what they call le burnout, which I don't think you need me to translate. I think it's French
0: for the burnout.
2: Well, Amar, whoa, well, man, he's a big friend. Oui. <laughs> so the, the French government, under pressure from trade unions, appointed a guy called Bruno Metling, who was the head of Orange, their biggest telecom company, one of the biggest, to sort of figure out what was going on. So he does a load of research, and he th- discovered that 35% of French people mm. felt they could never turn their phones off or stop checking their email because their boss could call them at any time of the day or night or email them. And if they didn't reply, they'd be in trouble, right? Now, I remember when we were kids, the only people who were on call were doctors and the prime minister. And even the doctors weren't on call all their waking hours, right? Now, almost half the economy lives on call. So I can give all the sweet self-help lectures I want about the benefits of, you know, unplugging, But if you can't do that, if the price of your job is that you have to be plugged in, quite understandably, you're going to go, well, stick yourself up, lecture up your ass, mate. Do you know what I mean? So Bruno Metling recommended, again under pressure from trade unions, that the French government introduce something which was then passed into law. It's very simple. It's called the right to disconnect. It just involves two things. You have a legal right to have your work hours written down and defined when you start work. And you have a legal right outside those work hours to never have to check your email or answer a phone call. So I went to Paris to talk to people about this. Big firms now get fined shit tons of money if they try to get people to answer their email out of work. Rent a kill when I was there just before, got fined 70,000 euros because they told off a worker for not checking his email an hour after his work hours had ended, right? You can see how that's a collective solution, one that will only happen if we all fight for it. It won't, ha- won't be handed down to us. That's a collective solution that frees us up to make that individual solution. Once you've done that, a lot more people will be able to buy a K safe and lock it away and do so many of the other things that we know will improve our attention. So we've got to attack this at both levels, the personal as much as we can and the collective.
0: You mentioned, you know, I've talked about my sobriety already in this conversation, but one of the things I do, I'm nearly, like I said, I'll be 12 years in March.
2: Oh, congratulations.
0: May, it's literally a day at a time. Sometimes it's an hour at a time, but it's an hour <laughs> at a time and a day at a time of just doing the things yeah. I know to do to keep me from being vulnerable to making choices that will ultimately unravel my life. And one of those things is when I check into a hotel room, but normally, if someone else is booking it for me, they already know to do it. If I check into a hotel room as I'm getting the key, say, can you send someone upstairs and take take the minibar out. And usually as I'm putting my bag down, they hotels are pretty good. They're like, all oh, right, nobody ever asks us this unless we know why. So as usually as I'm putting my bag down, there's a knock at the door. By the time I've got it to lift, I've got someone right behind me and they just scoop the whole thing out into a milk crate and they whip it out of there. The cognitive load of all day long staring at those tiny bottles of vodka and Jack Daniels takes it fucking out of me and I'm not going to do it. I will destroy everything I have. But it, by the end of the day, I'm fucking exhausted by constantly going, no, not today. No. Nope. Nope, no. Nope. And then, and that's fucked. So I just remove it completely from my environment altogether and it just makes it easier. And that's it. And that's similar to what you're talking about with putting the phone in the safe. I, I get it, man. I And I get that that's something we need to... We have these, almost like these two parts of our brain. We have this kind of reptilian, you know, jump when a shadow crosses over as part of our brain and this part of our brain that thinks about that part of our brain. And the part of our brain that thinks about that part of the brain has to say is the, the reactive one... It, look, just put it somewhere where you absolutely can't touch it and you won't touch it. I know up here we want to not touch it, but we are not stronger than you. <laughs> this is part of our brain that we can't overpower.
2: Exactly. The fancy term for what you do is called pre commitment, right? I interviewed right. the expert on this, Professor Molly Crockett at Yale. So, pre commitment is very simple, right? We all have things we want to do in the future that we know we might crack over, right? We might break at the end of it. So, For me, it's Pringles, right? Uh, Although my nephew recently pointed out to me that I look uncannily like the Pringle man, you know, the guy in the box. Oh, fucking hell. I know, but uh, sadly true. So for me, what I used to do is say, oh, I'll buy the Pringles, but when it comes to 2 a.m. and I wake up, I'll only have one or two, right? Which anyone who has ever eaten a Pringle knows- Best tagline ever, best tagline ever. (laughs) So the the, the pre-commitment model is don't buy the Pringles, right? And I did an extreme form of pre-commitment as an experiment for the book. Um, Which taught me a lot where when I came back from Memphis, from Graceland, I was just disgusted at myself and disgusted at what's happening to all of us. And because I was still in that mode, I hadn't yet got to the insight from all these experts about how we also need collective solutions. I thought the problem was just in me and in my phone. So I decided to do a very drastic thing. I announced to everyone that I was going away for three months and I was going to be completely off the internet I was going to have no smartphone and no laptop that was connect that could connect to the internet and I booked a little beach house in a place called Provincetown a corner of a beach house not sadly not the whole thing I couldn't afford it and I left so um, Provincetown is across from Boston and I left my laptop and my smartphone in Boston and I went there for three months and I was completely offline so it's a very drastic, for, I mean, the most extreme form of pre-commitment you can really do in the modern world, right? Yeah. Uh, when it comes to this subject. Yeah, and I, I learned a lot from that, including about the limits of pre-commitment, actually. But yeah, so you're absolutely right that, that binding your future self is mm. a very good tactic. So the more you can lock in those things. So for example, I have on my phone a much more smaller form of pre-commitment. I have an app called Freedom. It's on my phone and my laptop. So the way Freedom works is you can tell it to cut you off either from specific websites, let's say Twitter, which I never want to look at, or uh, you could just tell it to cut you off from the entire internet. So I have Twitter permanently blocked on my phone and my laptop. I have um, an assistant who I send things I want to tweet to, but I never look at Twitter. And that really helps me. Or, and, uh, and very often I just cut, cut myself off completely from it. So it's taking a little bit of what I learned in Provincetown home with me. So that's <clears throat> another form of pre-commitment that people can do.
0: You mentioned when we do switch very quickly, like the idea in the, you talk in the book about multitasking multitaskings a myth and what we're actually doing, which was kind of slicing our attention basically. And it, it reminds me of this place in Brisbane where many a PE class of horror as an overweight 12 year old, <laughs> uh, it was a place called Centenary Pool. They had this massive big 50 meter pool. There's a diving pool. There's probably a spa bath, right? And I guess the idea of when you're trying to interact with someone, as we were speaking before, and, you know, your friend Rob texts you, it's a little like dipping your foot in the big 50-meter pool, sprinting over the concrete, dipping your foot in the diving pool, dipping your other foot in the spa and the kids' pool, and then back and back and back and back and back and back. Like, yeah, you're wet, but you're never actually immersed. You never feel the immersion of the connection with the material or, heaven forbid, the human being that probably loves you right in front of you? What are we missing when it comes to connecting with each other, talking a little bit about your previous work? What are we missing when it comes to actual emotional connections with our fucking families? What are we missing when we allow ourselves to constantly be just kind of there, but not entirely?
2: I think you put that really well. The reason why I spent three years researching this is because I realized as I went, how important attention is. And I think it's important for a whole range of reasons Um, The first is, if you can't pay attention, you can't achieve your goals in life, whatever those goals might be. For everyone listening, think about something you've achieved in your life, right? Whether it's being a good parent or setting up a business or learning to play the guitar, whatever it might be, that achievement required huge amounts of sustained focus and attention. If that breaks down, and there's good evidence that it really is breaking down, we're just much less able to achieve our goals, right? And you sense somewhere that you could have been more than you are. Uh, you know, it, it, you become like almost like a stump of yourself. You know, you, you, you can feel that you could have been more than you were, than you're being at the moment. When I'm chronically distracted, I I can sense there are capacities within me that I'm not using, which feels awful. It's like your life is passing you by. So there's partly that, the breakdown in the achievement of goals. Another disaster is the breakdown in connections right because every meaningful human relationship requires attention you have to pay attention to the other person right like i'm just the last few months i've been in the uh, kind of in a new relationship and one of the joys of being in a relationship is feeling that someone sees you and you see them right it's this lovely loved up feeling you get uh he's just left my flat so i feel like i can say that without uh, sounding weird But you can't see... Think about my my godson, right? Who I deeply love. And it's actually become better since I finished writing the book for a range of reasons. But part of the frustration is that I felt like we couldn't see each other properly when he was in that state and when I was so distracted. I also think there's a third level, which is what happens to us collectively when our attention breaks down, right? Because a society that consists of people who cannot focus and pay attention will be a society that can't collectively solve its goals, right? Can't collectively achieve its goals. Can't identify problems. Can't distinguish them from lies. Can't work together. And I think about this a lot in relation to Australia. I was in Australia just before the Black Summer that you guys went through. And I write about it in in the book. It was a real... I think it was a moment for the world, obviously primarily a moment for Australia, horrific moment for Australia. Professor Kingsley Dixon called it a biological Armageddon that happened in Australia. Three billion animals burned to death or or had to flee. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this attention crisis is occurring at the same time as a huge crisis in democracy all over the world, in places as different as Brazil and Britain, and at a moment when we are unable to deal with even the most obvious and urgent existential crises like the climate crises in the way that we should be. So I think a, a society composed of people flicking between Instagram and Snapchat who have profoundly depleted abilities to pay attention is not going to be able to focus and solve these problems. So in a way, I feel like this the attention crisis is the thing we need to solve First, um, Dr. James Williams, who's a brilliant expert on attention, said to me, it's almost like if you're driving somewhere and you're in a hurry and someone throws mud all over your windshield, well, the first thing you've got to do before you worry about where you've got to get to is you've got to get the mud off your windshield, right? And it's a bit like that. We're we're, we're driving with mud all over our windshield right now. We've got to deal with that first before we can deal either with our personal problems or our collective problems. One of the reasons I'm optimistic, i is because there are actually loads of solutions. I went to places that had applied loads of solutions. Actually, New Zealand, not very far from you, that must feel a thousand miles away at the moment because of the <laughs> plague, is one of the places that's pioneered some of these solutions. There are. I went to lots of places that had identified the problems and begun to build solutions, and lots of people who told me how we can get out of this. Really reputable, you know, scientists, people at the heart of these machines. So yeah, I think there's a lot we can do.
0: I remember this this clear moment when uh, I think for my twenty how old was I? Twenty third birthday. I was given a PlayStation 1 by my girlfriend at the time, and it was amazing. It was the most incredible piece of gaming technology that had ever existed in <laughs> the home, right? And I had this car racing game. I can't remember what it was called. I remember playing this car racing game, and for you know various things to do with my brain, I would play it for six, eight hours a day. And I remember after a couple of days going, oh, fuck, all I need to do is give everybody one of these. And governments can do whatever the fuck they want because no one will care. I was so stimulated. I remember feeling that going, shit, this is really dangerous because I actually don't want to do anything but look at this thing and drive this imaginary car, this hyperreal simulacrum around a pretend racetrack somewhere. It just really struck me as the, um, if you had enough, it was like, it's like Soma from um, the Aldous Huxley book, uh, Brave New World. Like if you have enough people occupied by this thing that they can't turn away from, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Now, is that an Orwellian, is that a weird thing, a Huxleyan thing for me to say, or is there evidence that this might actually be going on? I don't know.
2: I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I wouldn't want to imply that governments are consciously pumping us with this stuff because that's not, that's not the case. But no, you're absolutely right. One of the factors, as you were saying that, I thought a lot about one of the experts I interviewed, an amazing guy named Professor Suna Lehman, who's at the, he's a professor of applied mathematics at the Technical University in Denmark, in Copenhagen, where I interviewed him. And he did the first study that proved that our collective ability to focus and pay attention really is declining, in fact, quite rapidly. And he, he it helps us to get to some of the deeper causes as well that go beyond tech, but he discovered it in a really interesting way. So sooner, Professor Lehman started looking at this because he, like me, like you, he was worried about this for himself, right? He had two, he's had, he got two sons and every morning they would come and jump in his bed and run all over him. And he felt really guilty because every morning, instead of like looking at them and beaming at it, he would reach for his phone and just start scrolling through his phone. Even though he loves his sons much more than he loves his phone, right? And he's like, what's going on here? And then he, it, rather like we were talking about, he's like, well, am I just a grumpy old man? So he teamed up with a load of other scientists like Dr. Philip Steen in Berlin, who I also interviewed, And they did this really big study. They started with something quite small. And it opened up onto this much bigger and in some ways more shocking thing. So initially, he wanted to look at, he tried to figure out, okay, are we focusing on any one thing less? And he decided to start by looking at Twitter. So people who have used Twitter will know, and people who haven't used Twitter, God, I envy you. I'll explain. On Twitter, there are uh, what are called trending topics. So the Twitter AI is constantly scanning to figure out what new topics have emerged that people are talking about? So let's say tomorrow Justin Bieber fell down a manhole. I hope he doesn't. Uh, Justin Bieber manhole would t- would be immediately the trending topic on Twitter. And so,
0: so would the instantly produced films that
1: <laughs> would take exactly. advantage
0: of that trending topic. That's the, the whole level of marketing exactly. Exactly. and marketing so, teams who are ready
2: exactly. to jump on a hashtag, Johan. Hashtag Bieber in a hole, but it's um, yes, all totally. yeah, into Right to myself, mate. Unconscious thing if I had just produced that mental image, which I've never said out loud before. <laughs> but um, so anyway, so what he looked at was he wanted to figure out. Okay, so that the Twitter trending topics show you that lots of people are talking about one thing, right? So you want to figure out has there been any change in that. So they looked at the, they analysed the data in Twitter. And what they showed was in 2013, on average. A topic would trend on Twitter for 17.5 hours, right? So every, you know, lots of people on Twitter will be talking about well, that one thing for 17.5 hours. By the time you got to 2016, only three years later, on average a topic would trend for only 12 hours, right? So it showed on Twitter. People were focusing on any one thing, significantly less, just within three years. But he's like, okay, maybe that's just a phenomenon of Twitter. You know, you can't really infer very much from that. So they then looked at a huge number of data sets, what people search for on Google, what people talk about on Reddit, huge range of what people talk about on Facebook, an enormous range of things. And what they discovered, with with one exception, which was Wikipedia, all of them had the same graph as Twitter people were talking less and less. But then they thought the thing that was much more important and interesting and goes to a much deeper phenomenon and comes back to your PlayStation in a funny sort of way, which is they decided to try to figure out, well, how long has that graph been in place, that downward graph? And they hit on a brilliant idea. Google Books has been scanning millions of books, the texts of millions of books, going back as long as there've been books. So they decided they developed this mathematical model. It's very, it's kind of a technical thing but it's pretty straightforward to understand basically it scans books from the past and it detects when new topics came up and how quickly they went away again so think about a phrase like no deal brexit right no one had ever said the phrase no deal Brexit before 2016. No one will ever say it again apart from historians in a few years' time. It's just a new phrase that came up and went away again, right? So what you can do, the fancy term for it is detecting n-grams. You can basically detect trending topics in the past by scanning books from that year and going, well, what new topics emerged? How quickly and how long did people talk about them? And how quickly did they go away again? So they scanned books going back to the 1880s. And here's the freaky thing. The graph looks exactly like the graph on Twitter. In every single decade since the 1880s, and it may go back further than that, it's just the decade they started, people talked less and less about any one individual topic, right? So people talk more about one thing in the 50s than in the 60s, more about one thing in the 60s than the 70s, and on and on. What this tells us is really important. I mean, it tells us lots of important things, but one of them is this is not a phenomenon that started with the internet. Now the internet has been a huge accelerant and there are particular aspects in the business model of how places like Facebook work that have been the huge fuel on the fire. But actually this has been going on a lot longer than that. So part of what's happening is an increase in speed, right? The world has been speeding up. The reason it feels like it's speeding up is the more information you flood into a system, the faster the world appears to go, right? It's like the way he put it is, it's like we're drinking from a fire hose, right? Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that really struck me in those three months I went off the internet. I remember a few weeks in, just feeling this sort of haze of decompression. And I was amazed by how quickly my deep focus came back, how, how quickly I could just sit and read for like eight hours a day and remember it. And, and then when I spoke to Suno much later, it sort of fell into place for me when he said that thing about it's like we're drinking from a fire hose. There's a phrase he used in his scientific research. He said, the way we live is exhausting our attentional resources. And I suddenly realised, over oh, the first time, it was like I was living within the limits of my attention. It's like I was sipping water at the rate that I chose instead of just being drenched by a fucking massive hose blasting in my face all the time. And so that experience you had with the, the PlayStation, which is partly what playstations do is they they go faster than previous video games or i had an experience once with my one of my godsons, not the one i mentioned before my godson joe he'd been teaching me how to play fortnite and i said to him joe um do you want to see what video games were like when i was your age he was like eight at the time and he's like yeah yeah so we played frogger i don't know if anyone oh, watching yes. Frogger. and after about five minutes he put his hand on mine and he said um, absolutely earnestly he said johan i'm um, I'm so sorry things were so shit when you were a child. <laughs> but, uh, but the you can see part of what you're experiencing when you get a PlayStation in that moment when you're 23, Osha is a sudden acceleration of things, right? There's lots of things yeah. going on, but things getting faster, which has a profoundly deleterious effect on your longer-term attention. So this is why a guy called Professor Guy Claxton at the University of Winchester here in Britain has done really good research on this. This is why things like A whole range of practices that are about slowing down, whether it's meditation, yoga, tai chi, massively improve your attention. It's not the orange robes. It's not the humming. I mean, they're fine if you want to do them. It's just speed shatters attention. Slowness heals attention. And there are lots of big collective ways that we can slow down together, which I can talk about if you like.
0: It would be remiss not to discuss... In, let's say, 100 years from now, how do you think history will remember Professor B.J. Fogg in the Stanford Persuasive Technologies Lab?
2: Oh, fuck, it's a good question. Um, uh, by the way, one of the things I love about speaking to Australians and being in Australia is it's the, my mother is Glaswegian. She's militantly Scottish. And I feel Australians are the only people who swear as much as people from Glasgow. <laughs> so it's the only place where I feel I can, I can be my true self.
0: All right. Well, two of my closest mates are from Glasgow, too. There's a lot of... Yeah, yeah. No, we... we And we've got to be... Honestly, but Johan, baby see, baby do. I have got to be so careful now because Wolf will just go, fuck, fuck,
2: fuck, fuck, fuck. I got in in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I got in massive trouble when I was in Australia last time because... I made a joke. I can't remember what it was. I think it might have been the Sydney Opera House. And I said, I'm so glad to be in Australia because my mum's Scottish. And I, and I feel that Australians are the only people who use the word cunt as often as my mother. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and someone in the book signing line came up to me afterwards and they said... Uh, I said what do you want me to write and they said well you write you can't love johan right so obviously i did and then they fucking posted it on instagram so oh, it looked like i had so. just randomly got up to someone and written you can't in their book uh, anyway um <laughs> sorry bj but fogg it's a,
0: fu- it's a fucking great word though uh, and i know, yeah word. yeah um, i'm with you mate i'm with you on that one yeah so
2: yeah so BJ, people don't know about bj fogg bj fogg is a very nice person actually which makes this all the more disturbing bj fogg is the inventor of something called the persuasive technologies lab at Stanford.
0: Well, very quickly, Stanford is the uni where everybody who invented the things that fuck with you on your phone all day long went to. They And a lot of those apps came out of his lab.
2: Everyone watching, BJ Fogg has changed your life, right? Yeah. Because he taught Mike Krieger, who invented Instagram. Basically, all, he's called the millionaire maker, though it should be more the billionaire maker now. Pretty much everyone who invented the modern world in which we live either passed through B.J. Fogg's classes or worked with someone who did. So B.J. Fogg had this idea back in the, as long ago as the 90s, where he he argued that technology had greater capacities to persuade people than other people. Because technology can persuade you without you knowing it. Usually when a person is persuading you, at some level you're conscious of it, right? The phrase he used was, technology can go where people can't. So he taught this class, which was originally called a class in mind control, but that sounded so sinister that they, bad PR, they changed it. And it, and it, it later changed. It's now called persuasive technologies class. And what he was trying to do was apply everything that had been learned in the 20th century in psychology about how to persuade people and apply it to these new technologies. So I'll give you a very simple example. The most influential psychologist in America, in the in the United States in the 1950s and 60s was a man named B.F. Skinner. I interviewed his daughter, he's dead now. And B.F. Skinner stumbled across this, this really interesting truth. He initially discovered it in animals. You can all do an experiment on this if you want to see how it works. Take a pigeon and put it in a cage and put a bird feeder into the cage that you control. And wait for the pigeon to make a random movement. Doesn't matter what it is. Could be raising its left wing because pigeons are kind of moving around all the time. They'll just do, do random things. Choose a random gesture the pigeon might make, raising its head high, lifting its left wing, whatever it is. And when it does that, release a little bit of bird feed into this cage, right? Then wait for it to do that gesture again, raise its left wing another time, put a little bit of bird feed more into the cage. Wait for it to do it again. You only have to do it five or six times before the pigeon learns the lesson. Ah, if I want seed, I'll raise my left left wing. You can make the animal do this. You can do this with lots of animals. You can make the pigeon obsessively start raising, raising its, its left wing. Now, you can then train it to do all sorts of more complex things, right? So what BF Skinner discovered is you can take people and make them dance to your tune if you give them a system of arbitrary rewards, right? doesn't matter what the rewards are. You believe you're acting out of your own free will, but you're in fact dancing to someone else's tune to get the rewards they give you. Using this system, you can train animals to do extraordinarily complex things. You can teach pigeons how to play ping pong, you can teach a pig how to vacuum, you can do all sorts of things. So what BJ in, in Stanford was doing was looking at that research, he looked at a lot of persuasive research, but looking at that, for example, should I say, well, what kind of system of arbitrary rewards could you start to offer people to make them use your app more? A young man in his class, Mike Krieger, thought a lot about that. He then invented an app called Instagram. And he discovered that if you set up an arbitrary system of rewards like hearts, you will desperately crave those things after a while. And it was one of the things I really learned in Provincetown when I went away for these three months without the internet. I was there, and initially I felt absolutely blissful. I I felt calm. I felt my attention coming back. And one day, I was walking down the beach... I remember it so clearly. And I, I was seeing exactly what had been driving me crazy since I was in in Memphis and before that. It was people who just didn't even look at Provincetown. They were just using it as a backdrop for their for their selfies. They, they weren't even looking at their children. It would, I wanted to scream. Except this time, I didn't want to scream, oh, you're wasting your life. Be present. I wanted to scream, give me that phone. Me, mine, right? Because I realised that what I had in a process rather like B.F. Skinner's process with The Pigeon, across many years, I had been trained to crave the thin, insistent signals we get from these websites, right? And when they're taken away from you, this is a very wanky way of putting it, but Simone de Beauvoir, the French philosopher, said that when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. And that was how I felt. It was like the world had gone silent, right? If we become acculturated to this this kind of input, no normal person in an ordinary social interaction when you've just met them is going to flood you with likes and hearts and say, oh, you're amazing, right? So you have to acclimatise to a, a much lower social temperature initially, but a much more rewarding one ultimately. But so BJ Fogg's students have created this machinery... That this will sound hyperbolic when it was explained to me when I interviewed huge numbers of people who designed this world. At first, it seemed to me hyperbolic until I learned more about it. This machinery is specifically designed to invade your attention. That's the point of it, because that's how they make money. I'll talk more about that. But again, I stress this actually isn't the biggest factor that's destroying our attention, but it's a big factor. We're living in a machinery that is designed to hack and invade our attention. And What was fascinating spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley and talking to the people who designed this is that they have been destroyed by their own creations. There's a guy I mentioned before, Dr. James Williams, who was a leading Google engineer, amazing guy, who was so uncomfortable with what they were doing. He quit and has become one of the leading philosophers of attention in the world at Oxford. But he spoke at a tech conference. The audience are the very people making all this stuff that's affecting our kids and us. And he said to them, if there's anybody here who wants to live in the world that we're designing, put up your hand now. And nobody put up their hand. Right? Good God. But the thing that's really important about this is to understand that we can deal with this and we can change it. We can understand what these practices are. To some degree, we can protect ourselves as individuals. But primarily what we have to do is take on this machinery because this machinery doesn't have to work this way. And there was a moment that really fell into place for me. So I interviewed lots of times and became friends with a guy called Tristan Harris who lots of people will have seen. Completely extraordinary person. I think one of the most heroic people I know.
0: I remember hearing, isn't he's the guy that put out like a keynote inside Google going, exactly. what the fuck are we all doing? And everyone went, oh, oh yeah, what the fuck are we all doing? It was like well, it was an extraordinary 48 hours in, inside that office. I remember when it all happened. I was watching it live on fucking Twitter, of course, yeah. but I remember when it happened.
2: How, that's so interesting because he... Tristan was working on the Gmail team very early in the design of Gmail. And they wanted more people to use it and for people to use it more often. It was very important that it happened more often. I'll explain why in a little while. And he's sitting in the Googleplex and one of his colleagues just has an idea. He said, well, why don't we make it so that every time someone gets an email in Gmail, their phone vibrates a little bit. And everyone said, that's a good idea. And a week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he just hears these vibrations everywhere, like birdsong, and he suddenly realizes, "Shit, we did that, right? That—that's us, and that's happening all over the world." In fact, he calculated a while later that that decision at that time caused eleven billion interruptions every day to people's days, right? Eleven billion. So Tristan was becoming more and more uncomfortable and he ended up leaving Google and speaking out against this and doing amazing work. Obviously, I tell his story in in the book, but Tristan, there was a moment and it seems like a small thing that really helped this to start to make sense to me why this is being done to us and what we can do about it. So Tristan said to me, if you open Facebook now, Facebook will tell you all sorts of things. It'll tell you whose birthday it is. It'll tell you if there's been a terrorist attack and anyone you know is checked in safe. It'll tell you who's tagged you in a picture. It'll tell you what you said on that site five years before. There's one thing it won't tell you, which is something you'd really like to know. There's no button that says something like, I'd like to meet up with my friends. Is there anyone nearby who'd like to meet up? Right? Now, the minute I say that, everyone can think, oh yeah, that'd be a really helpful button. I'd really like that. So that would be really popular with Facebook's users. It's extremely easy technologically to design. Why doesn't Facebook provide it? If you follow the trail from that question, I think what you discover is why our attention is being invaded, but most importantly, how we can start to get it back. So every time you open Facebook, Facebook makes money in two ways. First way is very obvious. You scroll down your feed and you see adverts, right? We all know how that works. Second way is much more important. Everything you say and do on Facebook is scanned and sorted by Facebook to build up a profile of you. So let's say that you click that you like Kylie Minogue, uh, Donald Trump, and you say to your mother in Facebook messages that you've just bought nappies. Okay, so Facebook knows Kylie Minogue, you're probably a gay man. No disrespect to the straight male fans of Kylie. I'm sure there's some. Uh, You're probably right wing because you like Donald Trump. And you've probably got a baby because, look, you're talking about nappies, right? Now, imagine they've got tens of thousands of data points like that. They can build up a really detailed picture of who you are. You are not the customer of Facebook. You're the product. They sell that information about you to advertisers so advertisers can target you. Because if I'm, if I'm selling nappies, you don't want to send a message to me. I don't have a baby you want to send messages to Osha? you've got a baby, right? So it's all about gathering, much more valuable to them than just the ads, is that they can target advertising very tightly. So they're building up the profile in order to target the advertising. So the minute you stop using Facebook for any reason, Facebook loses both of those revenue streams straight away, right? It's selling less ads and it's learning less about you to target the advertising less well. So it can't target the advertising as well. When you understand that, you can see why there's no button that says, which of my friends are around. Because if you push that button and it goes, oh, Rob's around the corner, he wants to go for a pint, I'll go for a pint with Rob. You would shut Facebook and Rob would shut Facebook and you'd actually look into each other's faces and like talk. As far as Facebook's concerned, that's a disaster because then they're not getting those two revenue streams from you. So as Sean Parker, the key initial investor in Facebook said, we designed Facebook to maximally invade your attention we knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. That's what he said, right? This is what the people within Facebook admit privately and in some cases publicly. But once you understand that, that this specific business model is what's maximizing the invasion of our attention from tech, actually, what I learned is that's, that's actually quite encouraging in one sense because we can solve that, right? So I'll give you an analogy from history. You'll, you'll remember this, Osha. I just I remember it as well from when we were kids. It used to be quite common that people would paint their houses with leaded paint. And mm-hmm. most people used leaded petrol, right? I can remember the smell of leaded petrol, right? And then we discovered that lead, exposure to lead, absolutely fucks children's brains. It ruins their ability to pay attention. It's, why, it's one of the reasons there was such a huge increase in diagnosis of ADHD uh, when lead, lead use exploded. So what did we do when we discovered that it's the lead in paint and the lead in petrol that causes such bad attention problems? We banned lead in petrol and we banned lead in paint. Now, you can see, I don't know if you can see from the angle you're at, but I'm in a flat that's been painted. I can see you're in a house that's been painted. Somewhere outside my window, there are cars going past. They've got petrol in their tanks, right? We still have paint and petrol, they just don't have lead in them. In the same way, we can have social media that is not built on a business model that has to maximally invade your attention, right? At the moment, the business model is invade your attention and sell it to advertisers, right? Your distraction is their fuel. Every time you get less distracted, they lose money. But as the people who designed this machinery explained to me, it could work very differently. So I talked a lot to Azar Raskin, who designed a key aspect of how the internet works. His dad, Jeff Raskin, was the guy who designed the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And Aza said to me, look, there's only one solution here that will actually work. You have to ban the current business model. A business model designed on hacking your attention and selling it to the highest bidder is just fundamentally inhuman. It's the equivalent of lead in paint, and it just has to go. And lots of other people said this to me as well, and I was like, but what happens the day after we did that ban? Would I open Facebook and it would just say, sorry, we've gone fishing? And they said, of course not. What would happen is they'd have to move to a different business model. There's two very obvious ones they could move to. One is subscription, like Netflix, HBO, whatever. We just pay a small amount, you know, 50 cents a month or whatever, and you get Facebook. Or there's another model, which everyone is experiencing right now. Somewhere near you, there's a sewer. Because uh, that we all own together. We paid for the sewers to be built and we own them together. Because before we had sewers, we had shit in the street and we got cholera. And so we all have an interest in maintaining the sewers and they're publicly owned. Now it might be, that just like we want to own the sewage pipes, we might also want to collectively own the information pipes, because it turns out we're getting the equivalent of attentional and political cholera, because we don't own them, right? Now, you'd want that to be independent of government for obvious reasons. But the important thing is, when we move to one of those two business models, those two very different business models that are very different to the current one, all the incentives change. At the moment, as Tristan put it when he testified before the Senate, you can try having self-control about your attention, but there are 10,000 engineers at the other side of the screen who are trying to undermine your self-control. But if we have a different business model, suddenly you're not the product they want to sell anymore. You're the actual customer. They have to figure out what does Osher want. Oh, Osha would like to meet up with his friends and actually see them. Let's put a button in to do that. Oh, Osher wants to be able to focus. Every time we send him a link, let's warn him, that you think it'll only take you a few seconds if you click on this, but on average, it takes 12 minutes. There's a thousand things they could start doing. So it'd be designed not to hack your attention, but to heal your attention. Because most people don't want to be addled; They want to be able to think clearly. They want to see people in the real world. They want to have real world connections. But to get there, we've got to change the business model. And they won't do that themselves any more than the lead industry would stop putting lead in paint on its own. We've got to make them do it, right? This is one of the many ways in which we've got to fight to get our attention back. Does that ring true to you, Osha? Does that?
0: Oh, mate. Look, I I totally understand. Like... How though to, to do this, to legislate against us, you, you do like you could sooner de-electrify a city than you could whip this kind of connection out of our society. It's you only have to look at what happens when like WhatsApp or Facebook goes down for an hour and people fucking panic, right? So legislating against us, particularly when the powers that be sometimes use these and it's been quite well documented how powers that be can use these to win the very elections that they got them into power. So that's a very, very tricky at at the top end, and it's something we absolutely have to to push for, uh, I don't know if you've been following the news in Australia, but there is a bit of uh, a push about uh, trying to get into law if they haven't done it already, that if a troll says something bad about someone in public eye, the the company has to give them up. They cannot be anonymous. The company actually has to give them up. But that's a start.
2: Sure, and an important start, and actually Australia's made quite a few. I'm not generally sympathetic to Scott Morrison, as I'm sure you can imagine, but actually Scott Morrison's government took a really brave stand on getting Facebook. To pay for some of the media that they profit from, whatever it was a year, it feels like a thousand years ago now, but Yeah, it was. Yeah. Was it yeah, it was pre was it pre-COVID? It was, wasn't it? It's a long time. I can't remember. Yeah.
0: It, was, it was probably six weeks ago, but <laughs> I'm drinking from a fire hose, Johan. I'm that, drinking from a fire hose.
2: That was a that was a really brave and important moment, actually. Where Australia led the world in that. But for a long time I thought what you thought. I would hear people say this, <laughs> got to get rid of the business model, and I was like, oh. Jesus Christ, you know, what, how the fuck are we going to do that? And actually, one thing that really helped me to think about this, this will sound weird for a minute, was thinking a lot about my grandmothers, who I loved. My, my Scottish grandmother basically raised me. So I'm 42. When my grandmothers were 42, it was 1963. And I thought about my grandmother's lives in 1963. So one of them was a working class Scottish woman living in a Scottish tenement. My other grandmother was a Swiss woman living in a wooden farmhouse on the side of a mountain in Switzerland. In 1963, neither of my grandmothers were allowed to have a bank account, because they were women and they were married. Mm. It was legal for their husbands to rape them. And it was legal all over the world for men to rape their wives. Every single country in the world it was legal for their husbands to beat the shit out of them because in practice, the police never did anything about it. My Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote. Each of them, both of them had left school when they were 13, even though the men in their families carried on at school much longer because no one gave a shit about girls learning anything. Um, In the entire world, there was not one country, company or police force that was run by a woman, nowhere. And there never had been apart from a few hereditary monarchs, right? And when I think about, oh my God, we're up against this really big, powerful force, I think, God, big tech isn't a hundredth as powerful as men were in 1963. Men controlled literally everything. What did what happened, right? So you think about, I think about my, my Swiss grandmother, she loved to draw and paint. And people said to her, why are you fucking wasting your time? Get back into the kitchen. My niece, who's 17, who sadly never met my grandmother, she loves to paint and draw. And when she started drawing, we were like, Oh, you should go to art school. This is amazing, right? My niece's life, for all the advances we still have to make on sexism, and obviously I know you're having a massive debate about that because all the revelations in parliament in Australia, for all the advances we still have to make, which are huge, and I'm conscious to all the women listening, I know how extremely annoying it is to have a man mansplain this, but my niece's life would be unrecognisable to my grandmother's. And they would be so proud and so happy about her and that this change happened and even the most crazed sexist wouldn't even dream of imagining that we should say we should, what, we should stop women having bank accounts, it should be legal to rape them, it should be, they shouldn't be allowed to vote. I mean, it, no one says that now, right? What changed? It's not that men one day decided to be nice to women, it's that ordinary women banded together and said, you know what, we're not taking this shit anymore right? And some sympathetic men joined them to be sure. And they fought and they fought and they fought and they made a huge number of advances. So sure, big tech is powerful, but my God, we've taken on much more powerful forces than that in, you know, humanity in our time and made enormous advances. But I think just like we needed a feminist movement and still need a feminist movement for women to reclaim control of their bodies and their lives, I think... We need an attention movement to reclaim control of our minds, right? Our attention is being stolen from us by big invasive forces. They're not going to stop on their own. We know from all these leaks within Facebook, they're being told of all sorts of horrifying things that they're doing, that they're definitely not going to stop of their own volition. We have to make them stop doing this. But absolutely, movements can do that in a way that isolated individuals can't.
0: To hear you talk about that and, and you know, reflecting on my own experience, certainly as my as my mental health got worse and I, I I got very, very sick for a time there, the role of constantly being on my phone just was it was like putting, you know, Fucking acid on my eczema. I just couldn't stop it, but it just made it worse and worse. Like the overall collective shitness of our mental health because of these things is probably that that's, that's enough. And when I look at you know the kids that are in our home uh, that I love dearly, my eldest and and our youngest, you know, I think what the fuck, you know, that terrifying photo of Zuckerberg walking through the conference hall with a thousand people with headsets on, and he's the only one seeing the real world. Like that's just fucking frightful right so between legislating against this stuff uh, which is the top end you mentioned this earlier what's the get the minibar out of the room what's the stuff you know, not everyone as you said not everyone can put their phone in a safe what's some things that we can remember to do like i know you talk about it in the book but it's like i'm even even reading it myself I was like oh fuck that's right i never come up with good ideas when i'm on my phone I come up with good ideas and I solve great problems when I'm on my bike. I come up with good ideas and solve my problems when I'm going for a walk. The actual time away from shit being shoved into my eyeballs is when my brain puts things together and goes, bing, and the best moves in my career have all happened because of a moment like that, not when I've been knee deep in the doom scroll. You know, reminding ourselves, what are some things that we can do today? We've heard this, we're terrified. We're like, fuck Johan, what happens now? You know, what are some things that we can remind ourselves to do? It's like, no, 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 your brain needs these things to decide things. Your brain needs these things to connect with another person.
2: Just before I answer that, Osha, there's something you said that I think is so important I just wanted to talk about a little bit, which is um, th- the aspect you talked about in terms of mental health, Oh yeah, Because there's, um, again, it's really important to understand how much of that is not due to the technology itself, but due to the, this specific business model. And there's a way of understanding it, particularly in relation to teenagers, but in relation to all of us, that I think is really important and really helped me to understand it. So, like I said, these business models are premised on, are built entirely on you have to keep scrolling. The more hours you scroll, the more money they make, right? So all of their algorithms, all of their engineers are just keyed into how do we keep people scrolling right it's what they're designed to do but those algorithms stumbled across it was no one at facebook or the other social media apps intended it this way but they stumbled across an unfortunate truth about human psychology the fancy term for it is negativity bias if you've ever been on the motorway and you've seen a car accident you'll know you stare longer at the car accident than you do at the pretty flowers on the other side of the road, right? So human beings will stare longer at things that upset them and scare them and anger them than we do at things that make us feel good. It's for an obvious evolved reason, our ancestors who were on the lookout for things that were scary didn't get eaten. (laughs) And our ancestors who were like, oh, look at the pretty flowers, they didn't live to be our ancestors because they got munched on. That's a slightly (laughs) simplistic way of putting it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, Um, Yeah, I get it. So unfortunately, negativity bias has a terrible effect if you've got a model based on purely trying to keep people scrolling as long as possible. Because what the algorithms discover is, if I put more and more things that make you angry and upset into your feed, I'll keep you scrolling longer. So picture two teenagers who go to the same party and leave and get the same bus home. One teenager says on their Facebook status, that was a great party, everyone looked really good, I had a great time. And the other teenager goes, Caroline is a fucking hoe and her boyfriend's a prick and just going down a list of slagging off everyone. The algorithm, because it detects angry and outraging words, will put the first status update into a few people's feed, but it will put the second status update into loads of people's feed because the algorithm knows that one people will engage with it. They'll go, you fucking bitch, why are you saying that? People will get angry. They'll argue with each other in the comments. They will scroll longer and longer and longer. Now that you can obviously see the effect that has on people's mental health. I think it's one of the reasons why teenagers are so incredibly anxious at the moment. It actually has a devastating effect on people's attention because anger ruins your attention. If you're angry, you can't focus. We've all had that experience. Or rather you hyper-focus on the object of your anger, but you can't focus on anything else, which is a disaster. We could also see how that's affecting us politically. It's not just happening at the level of teenagers who've been to the same party. That's happening at a political level, right? We're all fed things that are angering us politically. It's one of the reasons we're becoming so polarised. So I just wanted to say that about mental health and anger. In terms of what we can do... And it's interesting because we've uh, focused very heavily, and it's a good thing to focus on. It's the first thing people want to talk about on one of the twelve causes. But there's eleven other causes we haven't talked about, and, and I think I want,
1: I'm not
0: going to. No spoilers here, man. I want people to buy the book because it's a
2: fucking good <laughs> totally. book. There's a lot
0: more in the book. There's air quality. There's all kinds of things in the book. It's shit you have no idea about.
2: Exactly. The twist is Bruce Willis was dead all along. But uh, sorry, I just ruined that. But the uh- oh, don't, you just ruined Die Hard for me. Come on.
0: <laughs> that would be a really
2: good twist at the end of Die Hard you discovered that wouldn't uh, it wouldn't is. it
0: we'll bring Alan Rickman back to life it'll be awesome <laughs> <laughs> best Christmas movie ever by the way I mean we are recording this last year but one of my favourite Christmas movies ever is oh, Die Hard well, I once so
2: Alan Rick. Rickman and I was so scared of him because of Die Hard but, um, but no the, in terms of what we can do I'll give you one example of just a huge factor sleep on average we sleep an hour less than people did in 1942 on average children sleep 80 minutes less than they did 100 years ago. And the scientific evidence is overwhelming that sleep is essential for you to be able to think and focus. In fact, the leading expert in the world on this, Dr Charles Seisler, who I interviewed at Harvard Medical School, explained to me, even if nothing else had happened to us, even if all that had happened was this decline in our sleep, that alone would be causing a huge attention crisis. He did this incredible piece of research. It's kind of simple, but really haunted me. He put together two bits of technology. There's a technology that can scan your eyes to see what you're looking at. And there's a technology that can scan your brain, as we know. And so he put together and he gets tired people and he looks at what they're looking at to see what's happening in their brain. Incredibly, he was the first person to show this. What he discovered is if you're tired, if you've been awake for 19 hours, your attention is as poor as if you were legally drunk. 19 hours, doesn't seem like much. And what he showed is in this machinery, in that state, What happens is you're looking around you, you're talking, you appear to be awake, but whole parts of your brain go to sleep when you're tired, right? This phenomenon is called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. So you can appear to be awake and alert, but like significant, crucial parts of your brain for attention and focus are literally asleep. This is why drowsy driving is the fastest rising cause of death in our societies after COVID. So sleep I mean, there's many things, but one of the big changes I made in my life, and I stress again, I'm in a very privileged position where I could do that. We need to change the society so more people can. I sleep far more than I used to. I used to see sleep as an enemy, something I was like, I basically drugged myself into and wrestled myself out of, right? Now I know as Professor Roxanne Prashad, leading expert on sleep, or interviewed at the University of Minneapolis put it to me, when you're sleeping, your brain is repairing. If you're not giving your brain time to repair, you won't be able to think properly. So in terms of just one thing, the single biggest rapid boost you can give to your attention is to sleep more.
0: We will be back with Johan Hari in just a moment. We're talking all about his new book, Stolen Focus. You can find his book wherever you get your books. J o h a n h a r i is how you spell his name. Just type that into your, your book buying Whatever it is you do, <laughs> and, uh, you can find a way. You can always find me, if you like, send off your email at gmail.com. And, and uh, I really hope you want to come and see some live shows uh, that are happening in April. I'll tell you more about them at the end of the show. If this podcast does bring you value, the one thing you can really do for me is to tell somebody. Share the podcast, rate it and review it wherever you can. This podcast is an independent broadcasting situation. Uh, we are a, uh, a small shop but it's a business that employs a bunch of people and you can really help all of us by letting someone else know about this show. If there's a parent in your life who's concerned about their kid's phone use or if there's someone in your life that has told you, I can't stop looking at my phone, Maybe this episode is one that you might recommend them listening to because it's it's profound in that, you know, Johan does talk about the fact that it's it's not your fault. And when we take the blame away from us, it's, it's a personal failing that we keep using our phones instead of doing things with other human beings. It allows us to attack it from a different level and maybe make some changes in our lives. So maybe this is an episode you would like to choose to share, just hit the share icon in the corner of your podcast app and um, let somebody know, share it to your feed, send as a text message, send us a DM. It'd really, really, really help us out. We're back with Johan Hari in a moment. He has some really interesting takeaways. Uh, of course, he does not plug them all because, you know, he's here to talk about his book and his book's got all the good stuff in it. I recommend it highly. I've read it. Well worth it. We do need to play an ad here. We might play an ad. Depends on where you listen and how you listen. So you might hear an ad. If you do hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on. If not, we're back with Johan Hari in a second.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: You, you did talk about the, the the pace of change as far as women 's rights and women 's role in society goes like there is a, there is change slowly slowly there is change the new Apple iOS update offers like five separate do not disturb settings like it, it will turn itself off I my phone hasn't made a noise since 2000 and- Four, I haven't had a ringtone. It doesn't bing. It hasn't bing. I found myself jumping at it and like stopping what I was doing. So my phone doesn't bing, doesn't vibrate, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Like it's uh, what happens then is I get up and I fucking check it all the time just in case it does. But still, <laughs> it, do, it doesn't. But turning off my notifications has been a, a godsend to me. But then you know, there's these young people in my life, you know, I look at their phone, like they, you know, they'll put it down, they'll, you know, go to the bathroom. And while they've gone to the bathroom for a minute, their phone will beep 14 times. Like Jesus, fuck! How do you fucking do anything? It's such a gargantuan situation we've got to get on top of. And uh, as you know, as you mentioned before, like being aware of it and being aware of your environment is super, super important. And and you talk in the book a lot about it. We we didn't talk about it too much today, but you did you did talk a lot about. You can't actually process, can't problem solve while you're thinking about something. You, you're, As you said earlier, your brain can only do one thing at a time. So the downtime, you actually go and do some gardening, wash the dishes, do something where you're not looking at a screen or listening to a podcast. Your brain actually needs that time to put the random shit together because that's how solutions show up. And you offer some fantastic salves in the book, including a, a phone-free walk every day, which I love. I love the idea of a phone-free walk. And you know what's wild, Johan, is that I'm quite aware of – With Wolfie in our lives now, Wolfie's just turned two. If I'm in the room with him and I'm looking at the phone, as far as he's concerned, phone's more important than him and I never, ever want him to feel that. So I'm actually finding like the most extraordinary joy, and you would have known this with your, you know, as you mentioned, your nieces, nephews and and godchildren, the astonishing, like what's more stimulating than observing the discovery of a baby or a toddler figuring out, that this flower wasn't there yesterday and now it's there today. Like, that moment is amazing. And fuck your cat videos. That thing that I just saw is in-fucking-credible. And it's this pure moment of connection and dopamine release that is... It's like I've taken drugs sometimes. I go on bike rides. We go on adventures. I've got a bike. We put them on the back of it. It's the similar feeling that I used to get on dance floors. You know, it really is. It really Mm -hmm. is, Johan, this feeling of... Like astonishing, just joy and oneness and connection with this human being who I adore, and as a reflection of my wife who I adore, you know. And I know my phone's in my pocket, and I'm like, I should document this, I should share this, I should, and I'm constantly shutting that fucking thing down, you know, because I don't, I don't want to be away from the moment, you know. And it's 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 a challenge; it's not easy, but it's uh, you know, it's worth it, man.
2: And I think you're totally right. The 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 joy of attention to things that matter to us is such a profound joy that's being stolen from us. And I think to get it back, we've got to have a shift in consciousness. We need to stop blaming ourselves and feeling bad about ourselves. This is being done to us by these big forces. And I think we've got to have two real resolute determinations. One is we've got to determine to protect ourselves at the level of the individual. And there's all sorts of things we can do about that. But also we've got to have, like we say this bigger demand, which is, we've got to stop thinking of ourselves. We're not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention. We are the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds and we can reclaim our minds from these fuckers who've stolen them from us if we are determined to, and if we fight together. There's the t-shirt. I love it. (laughs)
0: Dole and focus, go and get it. Go and get Lost Connections as well and um, go even further back and and find Johan's work about addiction, which is uh, fucking good. It's a book called Chasing the Scream.
2: And at the risk of being a cunt, I meant to read out – So. My publishers will tase me. I can't read all this out. It makes me like an absolute twat. Who do you wants want me to voice, read it? Put it, you know no, that? copy no. and paste
0: it, put it in the chat and I'll read it. I'll just say it. No, I'll no, just... no. Here's, here's the gag. Right. Copy, paste it, put it in the chat and I'll do it in my TV voice for oh, you. Oh, great.
2: <laughs> well, I, all I meant to say is that anyone who wants any more information can go to www.stolenfocusbook.com where they can find out uh, where to get the audiobook, the ebook, or the physical book, which has just been chosen by Dimmicks as the nonfiction book of the month. They can also find out what people like Hillary Clinton and Stephen Fry have said about the book and you can listen to audio for free of loads of people we've talked about. The interviews with all the experts that we've talked about, you can listen to the audio with them.
0: Alright, hang on. Yes, your your, your English son voice. Okay, I'll <laughs> give it to you the TV voice. For more information, go to stolenfocusbook.com where you can find out what Hillary Clinton, Stephen Fry and others have heard about this groundbreaking work from author Johan Hari. Oh, listen to audio story. excerpts, ah! listen to interview grabs, all this and more, plus availability of the audiobook, physical book and digital book. Oh. Don't forget, stolenfocusbook.com, the new work by Johan Hari, out now. The Dimmick's Book of the Month.
2: Oh, do, do, you, know what that, do you know what that reminds me of? It's like when... Um... In the Chucky films, when Chucky goes from his psychopath voice to his little cute boy doll voice, you know, when he goes like, he's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And it's like, hi, I'm Chucky. Want to play? Yeah. Not to compare you to the Chucky doll, Osher, but you are like the Chucky doll.
0: <laughs> no, it's my rip-off of the, uh, tell them what they've won. That's right, Johan, they're in the running for it. A- yes. Yeah. It's Hooray. the game show prize read. got to get the sponsor <laughs> credits in there. Um, but yes, yeah, dollafocusbook.com, Johan Hari. You reached out to me again on on Twitter and well, I would say, I'll tweet you like, I know you don't have your Twitter. So. I'll never fucking see it. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. So shoot me an email sometime when you're back in Sydney. Hooray. And um, I'd love you to come and I'll, I'll put you on the bike and we can oh. we can go and look at flowers with my Wolfie. And it's uh, oh, amazing. It's super fun. It's, it's the best day you'll ever have. It's oh. so much fun. Johan, always great to talk to you. Thanks for staying up late, mate. Totally my pleasure. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Johan Hari. I adore speaking to him. He's a fantastic thinker, really unafraid to own who he is, own his mistakes, own his own journey. He's a a fascinating example of what it is to be someone trying to unpack what it is to live in this modern world while at the same time living in the modern world and befalling the perils of living in this modern world, as all of us do. JohanHari.com, J-O-H-A-N-N-H-R-I.com is where you can find his work. And um, I really hope you get into Stolen Focus. It's a fantastic book. I was really grateful to get an early copy. And uh, if the conversation that you just heard is the only toe that you dip into the water of his work, then great. You're probably uh, miles ahead of where you were before you listened. He's fantastic and his work's fantastic. On Wednesday, we're back with uh, a quick bite of Ben St. Lawrence. He's a two-time Olympian, long-distance runner, and Bree's got this conversation. Bree's one of our producers here. Bree's lined up this conversation, and it's great because it's a interesting, really interesting story. Even a two-time Olympian, someone who's been to the top of the mountain twice, can let their life creep up on them. They can fall off the daily discipline of, of fitness and looking after your body and focus. And how to get that back. Someone whose entire life was being healthy and fit and fell out of that and then found a way back. It's, it's a really, really good story, and I'm thrilled that Brie picked this one. So that's back here on Wednesday. I'll see you then. You know how to get in touch with me if you need me between now and then. Thank you very much to the people that helped me make this show. Andy Ma, my audio producer. Toe Hider on the brilliant music. Bree Steele on uh, research and production support. And of course... Rachel Barrett the executive producer of everything Rachel Barrett who I had a Zoom call with the other and said Rachel I want to do some live shows I want to go to Brisbane I want to go to Melbourne maybe Sydney I want this and this and I want that I want this production I want this and what and I want you know what would be amazing on stage if we had one of these and she goes leave it with me and then what's going to happen is I'm going to walk out on stage and everything that I said in that just tirade of ideas will be there because Rachel makes shit happen including this very show so thank you Rachel you're the best Look after yourself until we speak on Wednesday. Take care. Wear a mask. Get a vaccination. Be kind. Put your fucking phone down. (laughs) And I'll see you then. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.